Well, we are wrapping up our good news series today. And uh, we just had such good feedback and testimonies of encouragement right across this month. It's been a great series and a reminder, frankly, that there's still so much good news, even in the midst of challenging times. So we're rounding out the series today with a message that I've simply titled, He Will Build His Church. He Will Build His Church. Uh, It's taken from uh, this key text today in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13. This is what it says. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then he asked them, but who do you say I am? Just pause there for a minute. You know, it's one thing to think about who do people say Jesus is, but it's almost like he's asking you personally this very question today. Like Jesus is looking right through this camera to you wherever you are in the world right now, watching this online experience. And he's asking you, who do you say I am? Well, what was Simon's response? It says, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. Whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. So Jesus says here, I will build my church. And you might notice there's a little bit of a progression that happens here. I've experienced it in my own life where, you know, Jesus first says, yeah, who do people say I am? And then he says that to the disciples, who do you say I am? And it's Simon Peter. Simon was his original name. He becomes known as Peter. Actually, Jesus kind of announces his new name here. And he says, you know, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, well done. It's almost like The progression is to to realize who Jesus is, is the key to realizing who we really are. Jesus says, well done. The Father revealed this to you, who I am. And I wanna tell you who you are. You are Peter, which means rock. And he says, and on this rock, not only on who you are, Peter, but on the rock, the revelation of who Jesus is, I'm gonna build my church. I will build my church. So learning who Jesus is, realizing who he is, you know, starts to teach us who we really are. And then that leads to building his church. You know, from this first passage today, I see already five promises that I want to open with, five promises that Jesus gives to his church in this text. And if you're taking notes, the first one is this, is that that Jesus said he will build his church. This is important. He says, I will build my church. So, you know, As a follower of Jesus, I get to, you get to co-labor with Jesus. We have absolutely a part to play. The way that Jesus chooses to build his church is not without us, but he has committed. I will build my church, he says. So he's the builder. In fact, he's the architect. He's the designer. And what's important is is to realize, you know, sometimes from our finite earthly experience, we, we blow our own role out of proportion. But it's good to remember that Jesus is eternal. So since he said these words on the earth just more than a couple of thousand years ago, he's been fulfilling that promise ever since. For 2,000 years, he has been busy doing exactly this, building his church. Say it another way, long before my shift or your shift began, right? 
however long we have on this earth. Let's say 90 years, 100 years, that's a good ending, right? But Jesus, long before I clocked in, Jesus was already building his church. And long after I clock out and my shift is over under his leadership, Jesus will still be building his church until he returns for her. We are, in other words, stewards is a word that the Bible uses, almost like managers under his ownership and authority. That's important. Jesus said he will build his church. The second promise is Jesus said that he will build what? His church. Now I wanna put the emphasis on whose church it is. Jesus reminds us here, not only that he is building, but ultimately it's his church. It's good for me to be reminded, even as a pastor or a leader, it's good for you and I to be reminded, this is the church of Jesus Christ. And it belongs to Jesus, it doesn't belong to us. And you better believe that if Jesus was willing to give his blood and his body, his very life to redeem her, the church, then Jesus will not abandon her. You know, I love the local church with all my heart. You know, Liberty Church, we're like a family really of local church communities. I love the local church, all the different expressions and emphases and the different names that we give different local churches. But you know, as much as I love the local church with all my heart, it's good to remember that ultimately all of this is His church, like His capital C church, like the church, not a church, the church, what we are all a part of. And that the big picture is not our church or our expression of the local body. The big picture, the big win, the big promise, the goal, the prize that Jesus will return for is the church. He will build His church. He didn't say, I will build my churches. He said, I will build my church, one, unified under His name. The third thing he says here is is that what he is building is his church. I wanna park on that word for a moment. He will build his church. What is the the church? Just to take a moment uh, to unpack something that I've I've taught on before is that the word that we we hear here in English as church, the original work, the, the Bible was not, Jesus wasn't preaching in English, so the word was ecclesia. And that word ecclesia is rich. It's a beautiful, rich Greek word, full of meaning, but really a literal translation of ecclesia would be assembly or a company of people or believers or or a community. In other words, when Jesus says, I will build my church, what he's describing, the hearers were imagining it was about people, a body, an assembly, a community of people. I will build a movement of people, Jesus says. So it's kind of a pity that the English translators, centuries later when they put the Bible into our language, they they sort of co-opted two European languages. They took one word from the the Celtic and one Germanic word, and they made the word church out of two other words, both of which, Kirk in the German and Sirk in Celtic, they, they made the word church. But unfortunately, the root words both were denoting a physical place of worship, actually often a pagan place of worship in the form of a circle. And so, What they inadvertently did in bringing this word ecclesia into English is they associated the idea of church with a place or a building, a place to do a service or to worship. The problem with that is that so often now those things are inseparable. When Jesus says, I will build my church, he wasn't saying, I'm going to build buildings. He wasn't announcing a capital campaign. When Jesus says, I will build my church, he wasn't saying, I'm gonna build big big church services in, in beautiful, fancy buildings. And there's nothing wrong with having big services or having beautiful buildings, but we don't wanna miss the essence that Jesus was describing a people. 
See, church is more than just worship services. I love to gather. I love to worship together, uh, talk and communicate together. I love to learn and grow together. And frankly, I can't wait till we all get to do that again on the other side of this coronavirus shutdown. But Jesus wasn't just talking about building church services here. You know, as, as important of an expression of community as they are, and a place to grow, to serve, to receive, and also importantly, to contribute. Amen to all of that. But the fact is, right now, as I record this service, you know, in the midst of a global shutdown, you know, Jesus is still building his church. All that is not on hold in the times that we're living, living in. Even while many church buildings might sit empty, he is advancing his church. And why is that? Because listen, this is important. The church is a people, not a place. The church is a body, not a building. And the church is a movement, not a monument. We've got to remember what the church actually is. Number four, it's good to remember this promise. The gates of hell won't prevail against the church. It's a promise here. The gates of hell won't prevail against it. You know, in this uh, New Living Translation that I was reading earlier, it renders that phrase, the powers of hell, but it's significant. Most of the English translations, like the New King James or NIV, uh, render that here, the gates of hell. And why is that? What's Jesus talking about when he, he says here, the gates of hell will not prevail against it? The passage that I read, it's significant to understand that, that where the disciples were, it says in verse 13, they came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. Now, I didn't understand the significance of that town, until Andy and I actually had the opportunity to visit Israel for the first time last year. And we went all over Israel, but up in uh, northern Israel, we actually went to the ruins of the ancient town of Caesarea Philippi. And I learned something as we were uh, walking uh, with our guide, who's a, a messianic, a, a, a Jesus-believing Jewish man, and loves the Lord with all his heart, but understand some of the rich history of this region. And we actually went to this place, which interestingly, the Jewish people called this region the gates of hell. Now we're gonna actually put some images on the screen right now, photos that I took, Andy and I took uh, standing at that very spot because this was a place of pagan worship. There were uh, temples here, including the, the god Pan, a god of fertility. They had a temple built over the mouth of a cave which would fill with water and they actually believed that this was an entrance to hell, like a, the waters went down into the, the underworld, so to speak. And this place of pagan worship, of idolatry, right in the heart of northern uh, Israel here was like a really a place symbolic of darkness. And so Jesus is saying these words when he says the gates of hell, he's literally standing in a place that Israel called the gates of hell because of its reputation for idolatry. And Jesus says, I'm gonna build my church. And even all of this, even the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The reality is, is yeah, of course there's, hardship and setbacks, and of course we're in a battle, but we gotta remember we overcome and we have victory in Jesus. Hell does not win, and light triumphs over the darkness. Number five, the fifth thing I learned from this kind of opening passage today is he has given us the keys to the kingdom. He said in verse 19 a moment ago, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. He said, and what you, what you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. Whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. In other words, he's saying your prayers, your faith, you know, your confession of the Word of God, it's powerful and it changes things. So let's remind ourselves as we believe to see His kingdom come and His will be done in our cities as it is in heaven that we have wisdom and authority. 
And we have that through intimacy and connection with Him. We have the name of Jesus. We have the promises and the power. In fact, the Bible says all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. He says that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is alive and working in us. He hears our prayers and He calls on you and I to ask Him for what we need. Amen, we should ask. Interestingly, you know, this passage is significant to Andy and I on a very personal level because the very first time we came to New York City uh, was the year uh, 2009. And we came to the city because we'd been believing for a few years God was stirring a dream in us to plant a church. What is today Liberty Church? But we came not knowing really how to plant a church or not knowing people in the city, but we came to pray and to listen to God and say, God, what would you, what do you say? What would you have us do? And it was a roller coaster, to be honest, and too long of a story to really share in the time that I have. But there was a pivotal moment involving this passage where uh, we went to a place called St. Paul's Chapel. And this beautiful little church building sits on Fulton Street, like our offices in Manhattan, actually. And it's literally on the same block across the street from where the World Trade Center towers had stood. And on 9-11, when the city was attacked, that very chapel is the place where off-duty firefighters had run and quickly changed into their uniforms, run into those buildings for a search and rescue mission. And that little chapel, St. Paul's Chapel, ended up becoming a volunteer hub in the uh, days and weeks that would follow. People would sleep there and be fed there and be counseled there, weep there and pray there. And as we walked through the lobby of that little chapel, Andy uh, looked at a picture. In fact, we have a, a picture of, of that photo that hangs in the entrance of St. Paul's in the memorial there. And she stood in front of that photo, looking at the photo of a, a man, a minister standing amongst the ashes and the devastation and ministering to the hurting. And, and she heard the Holy Spirit say, these people are your people. And then, and then this very promise, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And it struck us, you know, the symbolism, the metaphor, that this little chapel, of course, you know, I'm not just talking about buildings, but what it represented in that moment, that that, that little chapel had stood actually earlier through the Revolutionary War, and now as the devastation, the tragedy of the, the Twin Towers falling on its doorstep, there was a sense in which the church was called to stand in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of difficult times. And I believe it's no different today. We're called as the church when it seems like everything is falling around us. We're called on God, by God to stand. So let's consider the times that we're living in right now. You know, I, I heard it said once that the local church is the hope of the world. The local church is the hope of the world. I, I think some might imagine they might evaluate the times that we're living in and say, well, gosh, this moment in history, it's all bad news for the church. Isn't it all just bad news? And of course, it'd be ridiculous for me to say that there's not bad news. Of course, there's, there's bad news. I mean, for one, the coronavirus is, is pandemic. The human cost of this has been hard to fathom. You know, people everywhere, all around the world, these um, just these tales of people losing loved ones and all the uncertainty. Um, even, if, even if your family and loved ones are, are well, you know, the economy and the uncertainty and the, the toll that it's taken on people, spirit, soul, and body has been significant. And of course, if we're talking about the church, all around the world, countless, I don't know, hundreds of thousands, maybe, maybe more of church buildings are sitting empty on Sundays right now. It must be eerie if you were to go in there and, and I think, you know, it's fair to say that even in easier times, not in the midst of a pandemic, 
much of the Western world has been seeing a decline, certainly at least in people who would describe themselves as Christian if they were answering a survey or a census. You know, and there's an economic impact that it has on the church as well. You know, of course, the, the ministries of the church, the work of the church is funded by tithes and offerings, people's generosity. And, you know, as the economy has been impacted and jobs and so on, of course, churches everywhere, including ours, are seeing an impact of that on, on giving and therefore on our budgets and our plans. And, but, you know, so yeah, there's, there's bad news, but, but there's also, that's only part of the picture. And there's good news if we're willing to look for it too and not only fixate on what is difficult. You know, for, for one thing, I've been so encouraged to watch many churches going online for the first time. You know, uh, some of them perhaps kind of in some ways holdouts or, you know, late adapters, a little maybe resistant to the digital age. And, and I understand some of that, you know, kind of loving what has been um, for the church down through the centuries and maybe a little reluctant to embrace the digital space. And yet, you know, I think the digital revolution is perhaps as significant in its evangelistic potential, as significant for the gospel as the printing press was back in its day. And so many churches now have kind of found themselves willingly or unwillingly thrust into innovation and creativity in a whole new way. Now, we at Liberty, we've long had uh, an online expression as part of um, our church experience, but we're now seeing three times more people engaging on any given weekend with our uh, services as we were seeing uh, before the, the pandemic and the shutdown hit. So more people than ever experiencing community and the gospel. In fact, the response has been so great, we added more services recently. And I suspect that many of the changes that we've made and the things that we've learned, you know, kind of the, under the pressure and the press of these times, the innovations that we've brought, I'll bet that many of those won't go away when we get back to being able to also have uh, gatherings in person as well. But also I think some of it's more fundamental than that. You know, pastors and leaders everywhere, just followers of Jesus have been caused to wrestle with, well, what exactly is the church? Is is the church on hold when we can't gather in in-person services? And churches everywhere, including ours, have wrestled with, well, what does prayer look like online? What does care look like online? How about counseling? Or how do people make Liberty home? Or how do we meet financial needs? How do we outreach when we can't go out of our homes? You know, all of these things have caused us to press into the more of God. We also need to remember that the global church is growing fast. And this is what often we miss. We need to be very careful. Um, those watching who would live in, you know, what we might describe as kind of the Western nations, we've got to be careful we don't have an unbalanced view of the world, which is very Western-centric, because the world is big. <laughs> it's bigger than the Western world. And while the Western church, certainly in some places and in some ways is struggling, it's good to remind ourselves the church is, is multiplying in unprecedented ways across Asia. It's multiplying in strength across Africa. The church is multiplying and reproducing across South America, even in our own church, your Liberty Church in Manzini, about four hours outside of Johannesburg in Eswatini in Southern Africa, flourishing, serving their city, uh, in many ways leading the way within our own church with a full-time community center in the heart of the city. You know, more than 40 organizations using that space when it's not in the midst of a shutdown to serve and love the city year round, meeting needs. I mean, it's incredible. Somebody shared with me a documentary just recently called Sheep Among Wolves. And 
It's about the underground church in Iran of all places. And it was new information to me that actually many people believe that Iran is the fastest growing church in the world right now. Think about that. In a place where they cannot gather in buildings, where it's illegal to be a follower of Jesus and where disciples of Jesus knowingly face death if they were to be discovered, perhaps the fastest growing church on earth right now. Plus, how many of us know, those are the things that I can see, how many of us know that the things that we can see and the things that we can think and figure out are only ever a fraction of what the infinite, almighty, omnipresent, all-knowing God is up to at any given moment? It's good to remind ourselves that that God describes himself as a gardener who prunes fruitful vines that they could produce even more fruit. We're going to look at that in scripture and he'll cut off things that are not fruitful. It says it in John 15, verse 1 to 4. He says, I, this is Jesus speaking, am the true grapevine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit, so they will be even more fruitful. They will produce even more, it says. He says, you have already been pruned and purified by the message I've given you. Remain in me. Another another one says, dwell in me, abide in me. Another translation. And I will remain in you. So it's about connection and relationship. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it's severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. So times like these ought to cause us to ask questions like this, Lord, God, are there any fruitful things in my life that you're pruning right now in order that they would be even more fruitful? It's kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? But God God knows that the way to produce the greatest amount of fruit in you and I is not just to let things grow, but from time to time, he's going to prune things that there would be even more fruit. Also, we should pray the prayer, God, are there any fruitless things? that I'm doing, any fruitless beliefs, any fruitless uh, practices or behaviors or areas of my life that you're cutting away. So the best of my energy and faith goes to things that produce fruit. It's, It's something we can pray and ask collectively as people following Jesus and also ask it personally. God, I trust you is really what we're saying. I trust you to prune me. I trust you to take away things that are not fruitful because you are the gardener. Now let's face it, if we're honest, I never, I bet you never enjoy being pruned, but I've learned to trust the gardener. Uh, Hebrews 12, 11, a very similar idea says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful, amen to that. But later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, he says. I think pruning is kind of the same thing. It's not pleasant at the time, but what's the goal? Fruitfulness, or in Hebrews 12, it says a harvest, a harvest of righteousness. If, If anything, adversity causes his church to grow. Adversity causes his church to change. And let's face it, if we look down through history, persecution and hardship have always come, but they've always held within them. Persecution and hardship have always held the seeds of revival and of harvest if the church would press in. The British Prime Minister Winston Churchill during the Second World War famously said, never waste a good crisis. So if you're gonna go through a crisis, and let's face it, that is just a part of life. Hey, don't waste it. Let's let it produce the fruit in us that it ought to. So if you've ever felt lately discouraged in all of this, let's also remember, we know how this ends. If you're a follower of Jesus, remember, we know how this thing ends. I don't know if you've ever watched a sports game where somehow you already knew the final score 
I don't know if you ever watched a movie, maybe somebody kind of blew the ending and told you what was happening. Well, doesn't it change the whole experience in the moments of suspense when the, when the hero's on the ropes or when your team, the score is down, to know that you're gonna win in the end changes the whole experience. But listen, church, yes, we're in struggle. And yes, there are challenging times, but we know how these struggles end. We know the final score. We know how this whole thing turns out. And it's that he will build his church. So if I can encourage you in one thing in the midst of all of this, this is what I think we ought to do before we pray, is let's make disciples who make disciples. Let's make disciples who make disciples. Regardless of what's going on in the world around us, we can be making disciples. And if we're making disciples, they ought to make disciples who make more. I was on a Zoom call with some amazing pastors I have the privilege of partnering with through your generosity to Liberty Foundation. We're part of a program called Hacienda Iglesia, and we're helping pastors in four major cities in Mexico. So in the midst of the shutdown, we had a Zoom call to encourage them. And in the Q&A at the end, one of the pastors said to me, it was an interesting question. He said, he said you know, I noticed after 9-11 that many churches in New York City had an influx of people hungry for faith and searching for answers. But, he, but his observation, he says, I heard that, it, that sometime later, weeks or months later, many of those people were gone and it was almost like we were back to normal. So he asked, I thought a very a wise question. He said, how can we make sure after this coronavirus pandemic, you know, if people flood into our churches, how can we make sure that we like really see them get planted in the house of God and not just come for a little while and then disappear? I hadn't thought about it before, but my off the cuff answer was this. I said, I think the difference is discipleship. I think in a day when if we're not careful, even the, the church can be a place where it's like, feed me, programs for me. And if we're not careful, kind of becomes like a spiritual consumerism then I think the real answer is discipleship. Jesus says, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. It's a journey. Follow Jesus, thriving community to make a difference, right? It's this rhythm of discipleship. It's not just about attending a service. It's not just about coming until I feel better or until I feel like this crisis is over and we can get back to normal. But my prayer is during these times as people connect to Jesus and to faith and to community, even through Liberty Church Online, is that a discipleship journey would begin where I realize my need of God. I, I connect in a relationship with God. It's not just about how I spend an hour or so on any given Sunday, but it's a spiritual transformation from the inside out. That's really part of our mission as a church. You know, Jesus says, I will build my church. But he also says, go and make disciples of all nations. That's what he commissions us to do. He says, I'll build my church and I wanna use you in that. But he says to his disciples, what we call the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations. That's why that mission's so important. Follow Jesus leads to thriving in community. In other words, it begins with a prayer, begins with a decision, and, and we'll get to that in just a moment, but it, it doesn't end there. It's, not just about a one-time decision or a one-time prayer. In fact, when you look at Jesus, in one case it says in the gospels that he saw the crowds and then he went up on the mountain and preached what was probably his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. When he had a crowd right there, why does he go to the mountain? Well, I guess it's an opportunity for people to, to press in, to be discipled, to, to do a journey, to commit to the price. On another occasion, Jesus says, you know, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't be my disciple. And a whole lot of people like, what? And walked off that day. Even the disciples, you know, were like, Jesus, this is a hard teaching. And you know what? Jesus doesn't just chase after everybody like, sorry, sorry, that was a bit advanced. I'll water it down. But no, 
It's really, it's like Jesus is allowing people to walk in this journey. It's like, hey, this is a choice. This is gonna be a journey. Hey, there's gonna be some challenges, some things that won't just come to you easily, automatically. But you know what, to me, the real opportunity of our day is to make sure that Christianity for you and I is more than just quote unquote nominal. In other words, there's so much nominal Christianity out there, just in name only. If I've got a list of religions, I guess I would check Christian. No, no, no. Being a disciple is so much more. Being a disciple, that kind of cultural Christianity will never cut it in challenging times. And I think that's what we're seeing declining in the Western world, but disciples who make disciples, who make disciples, people pursuing the very heart of Jesus, people who wanna be transformed in his likeness, man, that is where it's at. A harvest that multiplies. And that for me, friends, is the good news of this season. As in recent weeks, we've been reminded by dawn that we're more than conquerors. And my message that God himself is our provider. That JR taught us that hope from Jesus is the anchor for our souls. And Nicole reminded us that we have peace and not as this world gives it, we have peace that's from God. And then today, let's remember in it all that he will build his church. I, I believe that the journey of following Jesus, friend, it can begin right here and right now, wherever you are, whatever you're going through. I would love to pray a prayer with you, pray a prayer for you right now. So I'd invite you just to take a moment and reflect on your own spiritual condition. Where are you? Have you committed your way to following Jesus? Is He really you know, the, the Lord and the Savior of your life. And if not, can I pray a prayer for you right now? You could pray along with me as we commit our way to following Jesus. And then we'll give you some instructions about how to make this decision, this prayer really count. Come on, let's, let's pray. And if, if that's where you are today, I want you to pray this prayer after me and really make it your own. Well, dear Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son Jesus to live a perfect, sinless life on this earth and then to give his life as a sacrifice for us. His body was broken and his blood was spilled so that my sins could be forgiven and my past washed away. Thank you that in this moment, I'm becoming a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ. So Father, Fill me with your strength and your courage to follow Jesus all the days of my life, to commit to being a disciple who makes disciples, who makes disciples. Lord, build me into your church till that glorious day that you return for her and for me. Thank you for salvation today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen and amen.